Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Thanks for being here this week. Hope you're doing well. Again, hey, if this is something that's blessing your life, these lessons, just share with somebody else. Let's spread the love. Let's spread, spread, spread our testimonies of Jesus Christ, our witness of His goodness and His grace. Let's just put more good out there. Now, today I want to ask you, how do you tell if someone likes you? Like sometimes it can be challenging. Like right now I'm working at BYU and sometimes I get bored. So I'll go to the library and do some study in the public area and just listen to conversations. Not too long ago, I see this guy talking to a girl and she is clearly stonewalling him. Like, hey, do you want to go ice skating this Friday? Um, I think I'm busy. Hey, what about games with some friends on Saturday? Uh, I have a family reunion or a colonoscopy or something. And this dude just keeps going. And I wanted to put my arm around him and tell this poor soul that this is not going to end well. Just pull up, bro. Pull up. He was just drowning in the deep and he needed to get out of there. Heavens knows I could have used somebody to, to help me see things more clearly before. When I was in high school, I had a crush on a girl. Long brown hair, played the violin, got like a 34 on the ACT or something. And she was so interesting to talk to. So I got up the courage and I asked her to a dance. I think it was homecoming. I don't really know. I don't really remember right now. But I do remember picking her up. She had obviously spent some time getting ready. I mean, she always looked good, but uh, I was having trouble forming complete sentences now. So, so fast forward, right? Slow dancing in circles. Did I mention she smelled good? I don't know, hairspray, perfume. I have no idea. Uh, but she smelled like springtime and hope, I'm telling you. So I take her home. It's dark. I walk her to the porch. Tell her how fun tonight was. Look her in the eyes. They're, they're just sparkling. And I know it sounds cliche, but it was the moment. It, you know, I wanted to kiss her, right? But I just didn't know if she wanted to kiss me. So I chickened out. I hugged her, thanked her, and retreated to the car in kind of a joyful turmoil. Well, the next day at school, next school day, her friends were like, why didn't you kiss her? Kiss her? Uh, I, I, I didn't know she wanted me to. Idiot boy. Of course she wanted to. And then they proceeded to walk me through all of the obvious signs which I had been oblivious to. Dude, I feel like it would have just been easier if it was like in elementary school. When you could just write a note, it would go something like this. I like you. Do you like me? And then it would have a checkbox for yes and then a checkbox for no. Straightforward. And there you go. You have all the evidence you need and you could move forward. Do you want to kiss me? Check yes, check no. That is unless you passed me a note. Like I got one of those notes in fourth grade and I was way not ready for that level of commitment. Heck, I wasn't ready for that level of commitment <laughs> when I got home from my mission. So I took that note, shoved it in a crack under the shelf and ran out to recess and funneled all my passion and commitment into a kickball. Here's, a, here's some real life notes, <laughs> real classics in this vein. I am neither the author nor the recipient of these, but it goes like this. Real note. Dear Ashley, would you please be my girlfriend? I like you a lot. Yes, no, maybe. P.S. Please put yes, no, or maybe. <laughs> she circles no. And then she adds a postscript. I'm sorry, I already have a boyfriend, Kyle. But when we break up, you're my next choice. P.S. That'll probably be in a month or two. Or how about this one? Fine. I like you. 
But I don't like Leaf anymore that much. But I like you only a little bit. <laughs> and you were my only option. Or one of my all-time favorites. Dear Becca, if you get this note, you're probably wondering why. If you don't get this note, it's probably because I turned into a chicken and ran away. But let's get to the point. I like you, Becca. I like you a lot. I don't know if you really like me. If you do, check yes at the bottom. If you don't, check no. And then he gets a heart in yes. Oh, Becca coming through for our boy. Sometimes you just need that extra help. A little bit of confirmation, a witness. Well, as you know, uh, that witness is what Martin Harris is looking for back in section five. Martin shows up at Joseph's house in Harmony, Pennsylvania in March of 1829. They haven't seen each other in eight months because uh, Martin broke his covenant and lost 116 pages and Joseph consequently hasn't been able to translate for a season. Eight months. Well, he shows up at, at Joseph's house just freaking out. You see, Joseph's brother Samuel had been down to visit Joseph and Emma during the later part of the summer of 1828. And when he comes back, he reports uh, that Joseph and Emma are doing well. And this seems to kindle a desire in Martin to go check on them, to, to see how they're going and, and to let them know he still loves them and sorry still, right? Well, his desire kindles a di- desire in his wife, Lucy Harris, to nip this whole thing in the bud. Because although she originally was supportive of Joseph, she felt like her family's financial support of Joseph entitled her to more. Like, particularly, she thinks she should be able to see the plates. You remember when she came down with Martin and ransacked Joseph's place, looking through all Emma's drawers and stuff like that? Uh, when she can't find them, because Joseph had hidden them in the woods, she became more and more convinced that Joseph was duping her husband. And so she resolves just to put a stop to all of this. Joseph Smith's mom, also named Lucy, she said that, that Lucy Harris undertook to prove, this is a quote, that Joseph never had the record which he professed to have and that he pretended to have in his possession certain gold plates for the express purpose of obtaining money. In other words, she's like, I'm going to prove that he never has the golden plates. He's just trying to get my money. Accordingly, she mounted her horse, flew from house to house through the neighborhood like a dark spirit, making diligent inquiry where she had the least hope of gleaning anything that would subserve her purpose, end quote. So then Martin, Martin's wife, Lucy, comes to him and she's gathered up some supporters that are willing to say that Joseph is a fraud. And she confronts Martin with the news that they are going to sue Joseph for fraud. And and she tells Martin that she has sufficient testimony to incriminate both Joseph and his dad, Joseph Smith Sr., And they they say, if Martin, if you don't help us, quote, put Joseph in jail for deception, end quote, that they would also charge Martin as a co-conspirator and sue him for fraud. So Martin is freaking out. And that's why he shows up at Joseph's place. And he's asking Joseph if he can see the plates. Now, God has made it clear to Joseph that he should not show the plates to anybody, But during the course of translation, he has learned about God's plans to show the plates to a few certain witnesses. In Ether chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, it says, And behold, ye may be privileged that ye may show the plates unto those who shall assist to bring forth this work. 
Martin certainly fits that bill, right? And unto three shall they be shown by the power of God. Wherefore, they shall know of a surety that these things are true. And in the mouth of three witnesses shall these things be established. And the testimony of three and this work in the which shall be shown forth the power of God and also his word, which the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost bear record. And this shall stand as a testimony against the world in the last day. Dude, so there's going to be three people see the plates, right? Second Nephi 27, this would have come later in the translation process, part of the small plates, right? Tacked on. It says, wherefore at that day when the book shall be delivered unto the man of whom I have spoken, Joseph Smith, the book shall be hid from the eyes of the world. That's what happened so far. Nobody's been able to see it. And the eyes of none shall behold it, save it be that three witnesses shall behold it by the power of God besides him to whom the book shall be delivered. And they, the three witnesses, shall testify of the truth of the book and the things therein. So there is a chance that Martin can see the plates. Joseph knows about this idea of witnesses. So Joseph goes to the Lord asking about Martin and asking about um, witnesses, and we get Doctrine and Covenants section five as a result. And right off the bat, God, God calls out Martin for breaking his covenant in verse three. And then he teaches Martin a bit about faith and knowledge and how it works. He says in verse seven, behold, if they, meaning the world, will not believe my words, they would not believe you, my servant Joseph, if it were possible that you should show them all these things which I have committed unto you. This is an interesting idea. Like everybody wants evidence. Everybody wants proof. They, they think if I could just see the plates, then I will know and I won't doubt. Like God is telling us something here though that is pretty basic about the, our people in our culture and we're just unaware of it. We've been so brought up by the scientific method. It surrounds us in everything we do that we think we are most convinced by evidence and observation. But a list of proofs usually doesn't convince anybody. Think about the dude that sells Flex Seal. I don't even know his name. He doesn't stand up on your screen and tell you about the force of adhesion as measured in kilograms over the debonding distance. He doesn't talk about mucoadhesion or how Flex Seal has high adhesive force and low cohesive force. Even though these are the best observable proofs about how sticky it is. Instead, loud talking flex tape dude cuts a boat in half, seals it back up and embarks on an excursion. If you didn't catch that, he gives you a vicarious experience with flex tape. And that is what convinces them more than any data point. The same thing happens in like every single form of effective advertisement or salesmanship known to man. This connect this disconnect, sorry, what we think convinces us, which is observable evidence, and what actually convinces us, which is experience, story, and other things, makes most of us terrible salesmen. We think we just got to give everybody the facts and then they'll choose to believe. But if you've ever done your little foray into MLMs and then tried to sell people that way, you know what a terrible failure this is. But God, God knows what he's doing. So he says, the best evidence anybody is going to have of the Book of Mormon and of its authenticity is their own experience with this book. God's saying, you got to take your, take your own leap of faith. You got to dig into this book and have an experience with this book. However, 
That being said, he knows that you sometimes need some encouragement. Like you need a note with a checkbox, yes or no. You need a little eye sparkle for you to lean in for the kiss. So God says in verse 10, Joseph is going to offer evidence of the reality of this book. And then in verse 11, he says, in addition to Joseph's testimony, the testimony of three of my servants, whom I shall call and ordain, will also see these things, right? And these three witnesses will know for a surety that the book is real, that it's true. And I'm going to declare it unto them, God says. And they'll have the power to see these things with their own eyes. This will give people kind of a vicarious experience with the reality of the plates. Like when people are saying, no, the the plates are real, then they may take that uh, leap of faith, that jump themselves and experience the book for themselves. And in verse 16, God says, and behold, whosoever believeth on my words, them will I visit with the manifestation of my spirit and they shall be born of me. Basically he's saying, hey, if you take this leap, you dig in, I will tell you by the Holy Ghost that this book is real, that Jesus is the Christ, and you'll be, you'll be born again, right? Then he goes on, he says, now, Martin, if you want to be one of these witnesses, if you want to be one of these guys that see the plates and witness to the world, you got to humble yourself, man. Uh, he, he repeats this idea over and over. You got to humble yourselves and put me first, right? And you've got a covenant with me that you're going to keep your, com- my commandments and exercise faith in me. So Martin takes this to heart. Um, Stephen C. Harper says that, that this reorients Martin. Like Martin comes out saying, show me and I'll believe. And then let me prove to others so they'll believe. And then God basically says to Martin, believe and be humble. And then I'll show it to you. And Martin's like, to his credit, he's like, okay, I'll believe. I'll go for it. So Martin chooses to believe, and on his way back to Palmyra, he basically just talks the ear off a fellow passenger on the stagecoach about the Book of Mormon, witnessing of its reality and its goodness. And then when he gets back to Palmyra, his wife, oh, she's a handful, follows through with her threat to sue Joseph Smith for fraud. And the legal trial starts up, but Martin is ready. So basically, it starts out, and Lucy and her friends call up all these various witnesses, and they talk about how Joseph doesn't actually have the plates. But it's a really bad, like, I don't know, how do you say, um, conspiracy against Joseph? Because though they say Joseph doesn't have the plates, they all say Joseph has something else in his box besides plates. One guy says his box is full of sand. Another guy says it's full of lead. Another guy says the box has nothing at all. And they all are like, and Joseph is doing this to defraud Joseph as defraud Martin out of his money. And so the judge is like, okay, so the main question is, is Martin being defrauded for money? Martin, why don't you come up before we hear anybody else? So Martin gets up and he just says, I can swear that Joseph Smith has never got $1 from me by persuasion since God made me. And then he looks out at all these fake witnesses and he says, and as to the plates, which he professes to have, gentlemen, if you do not believe it, but continue to resist the truth, it will one day be the means of damning your souls. And so the judge looks out and he's like, so Joseph isn't taking your money? It's like, what are you idiots doing? Why are you wasting my time here? Bring me the testimony of those witnesses. He tears them all up into pieces and he's like, get the heck out of my courtroom. This is 
idiocy. And Lucy Harris and all her little conspiracy friends are abashed and confounded and leave full of shame and confusion. Anyways, back among Joseph, Joseph and Oliver, as you know, then uh, finish up the, the Book of Mormon and then near the end of finishing up the Book of Mormon, they move up to Fayette to the Whitmer farm where there's a little bit more peace to, to finish everything up. So while they're up in Fayette, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, his little bestie up there, and Martin Harris comes to visit and they're all like, can it be us? Because all of these guys have, have critically contributed to the Book of Mormon. And so Joseph asks and receives section 17. And he he says, um, Behold, I say unto you that you must rely upon my word. Like begin with faith. And if you do with full purpose of heart, then you shall have a view of the plates and of the breastplate and the sword of Laman and the the Urim and Thummim. Um, And he goes on and the miraculous directors and it is by your faith that you shall obtain a view of them, even by the, that faith which was had by the prophets of old. And after you have obtained faith and have seen them with your eyes, ye shall testify of them by the power of God. And this is going to help a lot, God says, so that Joseph is not destroyed. Because you're going to testify that you've seen them, that these plates are real. Uh, but it's only going to come because of faith. It's like God is saying, if you believe... If you trust me, I'm going to reveal this to you and it's going to be pretty spectacular. And so this all goes down, this big event on June 28th, 1829. They wake up in the morning and, and this tiny little Whitmer house is just packed to the brim. It's basically my living room and my dining room area, okay? But you got like Joseph Smith's parents are there, Joseph, Oliver, Emma, Martin Harris is visiting. It is just packed to the rafters more or less, right? And so they get up in the morning and they have a kind of a devotional service, scripture study, if you will. They sing a hymn, pray. And then after they pray, Joseph comes up to Martin and he says, Martin, you have got to humble yourself. Again, this main theme before God. And if you do, it is God's will that you and Oliver and David should look upon the plates. And Joseph said, uh, Joseph's mom, Lucy, says soon after these four men, Joseph, Oliver, David, uh, and Martin, they leave for a grove a short distance from the house. Basically, they go out to the backyard where there's woods and they begin to offer a uh, humble prayer to God. Um, basically, each of them kneel down and they pray out loud that God will show them the plates. And then nothing happened. And so then they pray again, each out loud, each expressing faith, and nothing happens. Well, Martin's like, dude, this is my bad. I've been warned multiple times that I need to be humble, um, and apparently it's on me. And so he, he walks off, and it looks like it was his fault, because right after he takes off, then Moroni shows up and shows them everything promised, the plates, the sword, the director, the, the stones, everything. And they hear the voice of the Lord saying, this is of God, witness of it. Well, once they, they, they get done seeing it, Joseph says that he leaves David and Oliver and he goes out and he finds Martin just distraught. Yeah, you can feel like you blewed it, blewed it. <laughs> Dude, I'm a master of the English language. He just feels like he, he has blown it, right? Um... But then Joseph kneels down by him and he's like, Martin, we can make this happen. Let's try again. And so they pray again. And then Moroni appears, shows Martin what what the other two have seen. And Martin's like, yes. 
And so these guys write down their witness. And their witness focuses on two things. Number one, that they have seen it, like a visual um, authentication of these plates. And they also witness that they have heard the voice of the Lord testifying of the truth of these things. So when they write down their witness, it focuses on this vig- visual and auditory quality of this witness. Like uh, we have seen the plates. We have seen the engravings which are on the plates. We beheld and saw the plates and the engravings we beheld. And then they say, we be- well, the voice of the Lord commanded us. And so their witness is, there really are plates, Right. After this experience, then Joseph and Emma, they travel up to Palmyra and Joseph receives permission to show the plates to eight additional witnesses. And so um, on July 2nd, uh, 1829, he he grabs um, his dad, he grabs his brother Hiram, his brother Samuel, and then um, four of David's brothers, Christian, Jacob, um, Peter Jr. and John, and then also David Whitmer's brother-in-law, Hiram, Hiram Page, and they go out into the woods. Now, it's a little bit different because instead of praying for an angel to show up, um, they, they just he says, hey, wait here. He goes off into the woods, grabs the plates, and brings them back. They don't see an angel. They don't see the other stuff, but they do get a cool opportunity to hold the plates, to turn the pages, and to inspect the ancient writing. And so um, their witness um, does focus on the, the fact that they saw it, but also manifests this tactile uh, authentication. They said, we did handle with our hands and we saw the engravings and this book is true, right? Now, over time, the, these 11 witnesses, the three first witnesses and the, the eight later witnesses, many of them um, fell away from the church. Elder Irene says this, the three witnesses never denied their testimony of the Book of Mormon. They could not because they knew it was true. They made sacrifices and faced difficulties beyond what most people ever know. Oliver Cowdery gave the same testimony about the divine origin of the Book of Mormon as he lay dying. But in times of trial, they wavered in their faith that Joseph was still God's prophet and that the only way to come into the Savior was through his restored church, that they continued to affirm what they saw and heard in that uh, marvelous experience during long periods of estrangement from the church and from Joseph makes their testimony more powerful. Um, This idea is interesting, right? Uh, Elder Irene is saying, hey, the three witnesses, all of them for a time fell away from the church and had disagreements with Joseph, but not one of them said, no, 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 we made that up. Every single one of them are passionate about the fact, no, the Book of Mormon is true. The plates are real. This is an actual thing, right? Like Thomas B. Marsh, um, he was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, but he also falls away from the, um, from the church. We'll talk about this in a later date. But, but he, he's kind of looking for fuel, looking for reason about um, how the church isn't true. And so he goes to the three witnesses. He's like, all right, we're both out of the church now. You can just tell me the truth. Like, it, it's fake news, right? And so he goes to David Whitmer, and Thomas says, I inquired seriously at David if it was true that he had seen an angel according to his testimony as one of the witnesses of the Book of Mormon, he replied, as sure as there is a God in heaven, I saw an angel according to the testimony in the book. 
Now, now David Whitmer is one of the the witnesses that lives the longest, um, and so he's uh, he's interviewed over and over and over again. He's out of the church for decades. He never comes back. Um, both Martin and Oliver eventually come back, but but people grill him all the time about this book. They're like, "All right, come on, man." Well, in one instance, they're like, maybe it was like a mental disturbance or a hallucination. And David like comes back at this passionately. He's like, no, sir, I was not under any hallucination, nor was I deceived. I saw with these eyes and I heard with these ears and I know whereof I speak. I saw them just as plain as I see this bed. And then he swack, he hits the bed. And I heard the voice of the Lord as distinctly as I ever heard anything in my life, declaring that the records of the plates of the Book of Mormon were translated by the gift and power of God. Our testimony as recorded in the Book of Mormon is strictly and absolutely true, just as it is there written. Similarly, somebody comes to Martin Harrison and they're like, come on, man, you didn't really see this. It was kind of like a dream or something like that. And Martin is also like, dude, are you joking me right now? He holds his hand up in front of their faces and he gets a little salty. He's like, gentlemen, you see my hand? Are you sure you see it? Are your eyes playing a trick on you or something? Well, as sure as you see my hand, so sure did I see the angel in the plates. And then he points across the yard to a chopping block where he chopped the heads off a chicken and stuff. He says, you see that chopping block? Well, just as plain as you see that chopping block, I saw the plates. And sooner than I would deny it, I would lay my head upon that chopping block and let you chop it off. You think he's serious about this? Oliver Cowdery, same thing. I beheld with my eyes and I handled with my hands the gold plates from which it was translated. I also saw with my eyes and handled with my hands the holy interpreters. That book is true. So then here's my question. Why do these witnesses matter? Why is it important that there are other people besides Joseph Smith that testify of the reality of this book? Well, there's a guy named Austin Fair. He's a Christian. He's not a member of our church, but he talks a little bit about this idea of evidence and rational argument. He says, rational argument does not create conviction, but lack of rational argument destroys belief. What seems to be proved may not be embraced, but what no one shows the ability to defend is quickly abandoned. Rational argument does not create belief, but it maintains a climate in which belief may flourish. In other words, there is not a substitute for experiencing the Book of Mormon for yourself and filling the Holy Ghost to get your own testimony. But witnesses and rational argument for the Book of Mormon can get you to take that leap of faith and engage in the book in a serious way. It's like having a check yes on the note. You're like, okay, I'm in. I'll go for it. It's like having her friends say, oh, she's really into you. So you go for it. It's like going on vacation. You're you're never going to know how powder sugar soft the beach is and how crisply sweet the drinks are until you are at the resort. But what gets you to take that leap? Well, you look at the pictures and the blog entries and the stories and stuff. In essence, these witnesses and the other rational arguments for the Book of Mormon are like the pictures that get you to actually book the trip. It's, it's what gets you to take that leap with the Book of Mormon. So 
let me let me show you a, a few more metaphorical pictures here or a few more witnesses or rational arguments for this book. First, you remember the translation process of the Book of Mormon. Every witness we have says Joseph is looking at a rock in a hat and dictating this book as he goes. He'll pick up in the middle of the sentence after leaving off, after a day of sleep, after lunch, after whatever. He's just reading this book, right? But as he is doing this, as he is dictating over 530 pages of text, he is also doing um, like some pretty complex things. Like one of the complex things you need to recognize, one of the witnesses that I want to present to you is that the Book of Mormon presents a complex and internally consistent geographic map of places, locations, and spatial relationships that are maintained over hundreds of pages in the background of complex narratives. Do you get what I'm saying here? We don't know what the Book of Mormon, where the Book of Mormon happened exactly. That hasn't been revealed. But we do know that the Book of Mormon map always agrees with itself. Like where they say the cities are in relationship to where, uh, where they are, they're always there. Like just think about the first half of the Book of Mormon. You got Lehi and his family leaving Jerusalem and arriving at the promised land and they call the, the place the land of the first inheritance. Then after their dad dies, Laman and Lemuel plot to kill Nephi. So he gets the heck out of Dodge with the records and names his new settlement creatively Nephi. And so then you get the Lamanites in the south and the Nephites in the north. Well, after a couple of hundred years, the Lamanites expand and most of the Nephites turn bad. So King Mosiah I takes anybody faithful and they go north, way north. And they discover that there's a whole big group of people living in the north that left Jerusalem about the same time they did under the direction of a guy named Mulek. So they combine forces, and for ease uh, of reference, the wise editor Mormon just basically calls them Nephites from that point on, and they settle in this city called Zarahemla. But then you get a group of Nephites that want to go back and possess the land in the south under the direction of a guy named Zenith. They go back to Lamanite territory, and that's where you get King Noah and Abinadi, you know, Jack, Abinadi, Santa Claus, right? Um and then you get uh, the one priest named Alma. Well, they take off and they form their own city, Helam. And then they're captured. And then the other people get rescued and taken back to Zarahemla. And then Alma goes back to Zarahemla, right? Or, yeah. Um, and so, so you get like this complex story, right? Um, and then you get Alma Jr. getting his butt kicked by an angel and repents with his ne'er-do-well criminal friends, and they decide to go on a mission back to the Lamanites, and they start with Ishmael, where Ammon chops off some, some arms, and then they go back to the Lamanite headquarters and see the big king, and then they travel out around a bunch, and uh, meanwhile, Ammon's Alma, excuse me, Alma's preaching back up north in Zarahemla, Gideon, Mulek, and then the big brouhaha in Ammonihah, you remember this? This is super fast forward, right? Where they, they escape from prison, slow motion action, seeing dust clouds billowing up, and then prophesying the destruction of Ammonihah, and it seems improbable. But then back in Lamanite territory, you get all the, the Lamanites getting angry at their converted brethren. There's battles, and they just slaughter them, and it's unsatisfying, so they decide to take it out on the real enemies, the Nephites. So they travel north and just decimate Ammonihah before anybody can do anything. And then they have the displeasure of running into the Nephites at the river Sidon and just getting wrecked and running home. And finally, Ammon is able to convince the anti-Nephi Lehi's. Um, that's a name that's not made up by a modern thinker, just FYI. And they travel north and then the Nephites give them the land of Jershon. 
Like, this is awesome. Look up some of the, uh, the internal maps of the Book of Mormon, not ones that they try and place it in North America or South America or whatever, just the internal maps. Like, it is just astounding, the, this work of internal geographic detail and consistency over long periods of time. It's, it's a witness. Second, you got this complex text that takes on chronological complexity. Like, you got parallel narratives that take place at the same time in Zarahemla and in the land of Lehi-Nephi. One story, you get taken through three kings, Mosiah, Benjamin, and then Mosiah II. And then there's a flashback that takes us through the story of King Zenith, Noah, and Limhi with all the craziness of Abinadi. And then the fl- story just flows chronologically back together masterfully. Or like we just talked about, the mission to the Lamanites along with Mi- Alma's mission to the Nephites and the resulting battles and how they just line up perfectly. It is amazingly complex and consistent. Then just consider the narrative complexity of, say, Ether. I doubt you have ever read the first chapter of Ether very closely, but it's really clever. In that chapter, Moroni lists off 31 names of kings and then tells their story in reverse order throughout the rest of the book of Ether. Like, imagine trying to pull off something like that. Like, you're pretending to translate a book, uh, an ancient record, while you stare at one or two rocks in the bottom of your hat. And then you rattle off 31 generations of uncommon names to your scribes without any notes. And then you recount the story of those 31 names in exact reverse order, starting with the last person you mentioned, and you tell the story backwards until you get to the first person without notes or peeking. And of course, you provide rich historical, geographical, and faith-promoting details along the way. Child, please. Not to mention, like, the, the, the Hebraic complexity. Like, the, there's Hebrew elements throughout the Book of Mormon. Like, one, is, uh, one element is one that you're familiar with. It's a form of Hebrew poetry called chiasmus. Hebrew prophets often use the, this form of poetry to emphasize things. And what they would do is they, they would arrange their statements in mirror images. It would follow a predictable pattern. It would go like A, B, B, A. It's like kindergarten rhythm, right? Kindergarten matching or patterns right there. Like he that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. And you see the repeat of find, lose, lose, find. Like that's the pattern, like uh, emphasizing this idea of losing your life for the sake of Jesus Christ. Well, then you get to Alma 36 that not only uses this ancient Hebrew poetic structure, but does so while telling a story and takes the poetic form nine levels deep and the center points to the Savior Jesus Christ, you know, while looking at a rock in a hat. It is next level astounding. Just think about this. Like, let's say you're going to write your own Book of Mormon. Like, you're given a topic as the story of the ancient inhabitants of America. And you're not allowed to use any outside source material. And your book's got to be at least 531 pages. Now, some of you are like, I'm out. 531 pages? Nope, not doing that. But like, let's keep going. Among these 531 pages, you've got to include 54 chapters dealing with war, with an evolution of strategy and weapons as you go. 21 historical chapters, 
55 chapters on visions and prophecies, 71 chapters on doctrine and exhortation, 21 chapters on the ministry of Christ, and all those on visions, doctrine, and ministry, they've got to agree meticulously with the Bible or you're going to be exposed with a, as a fraud. You're going to write one chapter, 77 verses long, just epically long. And in doing so, you're going to describe an extended allegory about tame and wild olive trees which cryptically expounds upon the scattering and gathering of Israel throughout all time, all while agreeing absolutely with both botanical principles and true biblical doctrine, not to mention the fact that you have no idea about olive trees, but it's going to all work out. Then you're going to write another chapter, 30 verses long, um, which which forms the most complete and complex chiasmus known in scripture. And we just talked about it, right? But don't draw any attention to the fact that it has a chiasmus. Let it be discovered about 120 years after you die, because that will help. Throughout the entire book, you must employ both ancient and original figures of speech. Use ancient and original similes, metaphors, narration, exposition, description, oratory, epic, lyric, logic, parables, all of it. You got to invent many presently unknown names of people and places, which will later be discovered as real on uh, digs out in Saudi Arabia. This will help authenticate your book. And do this in approximately 65 working days with no punctuation, little or no revising or review, all while trying to provide for your family living in poor circumstances. Go on, try it out for yourself. (laughs) Come on, man. Here's the thing. This book is what it claims to be. It is translated by the gift and power of God. You've got to actually confront this book. Like for me, I'm like, hooray for the the hat. (laughs) Like this guy gives us this book of deep deep complexity while looking at a rock in a hat. You've got to engage this and see, is this actually what it claims to be? Is this actually a book of God? Does it actually testify of Jesus Christ? Because that's, Basically, it is either a fraud or, (laughs) and it's a crazy amount to to be a fraud, or it is what it claims to be as a witness of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, it's real. You got to experience it for yourself. Now, forgive a little seminary teacher cheesiness here at the end, but as you know, in football, there are 11 players on the field. Some fans seek to influence the outcome of the games, and and as they do so, they call themselves the 12th man. Uh, The Seahawks do this in particular. Texas A&M does this. And and like no other sport, this becomes important with them running set plays. If you can be really loud, you can make it so that the quarterback and the players can't hear what the play being called is, and so you can really swing the advantage towards uh, the, the defense and towards your team. And so Seattle, like, and this is, I don't care if you like Seattle or not, but they do a really good job at this. Like the, the fans up in Seattle, not this year, obviously, but they regularly cheer so loud that it registers at like 137.6 decibels. It's just a handful of decibels away from rupturing your eardrum. But that's not my favorite one. Check this out. In 2011, when they're in a wild, game, wild card playoff game against the New Orleans Saints, Marshawn Lynch, beast mode himself, rips off a 67-yard touchdown run. The 12th man cheers so loud 
that their, their cheering registers as a seismic activity on the nearby Pacific Northwest Seismic Network. Do you get that? They cheer so loud they shake the earth. They caused an earthquake. Tell me that's not biblical in proportion right there. That's cool. Now with three witnesses and the eight witnesses, that makes 11. What if you made yourself the 12th man? What if you were the, the next witness? Like, I, I want to add my witness to this, my small witness. I grew up on the Book of Mormon. We grew up in a, a small ta- house in, in Ogden. And um, my mom would frequently kind of be up late and I'd hear her and my dad talking. Um, and I'd go to, to sleep kind of with that gentle murmur of my parents' conversation. But, but my dad would work different shifts uh, as a flour miller. And so sometimes he'd be on a swing shift or a night shift and he wouldn't be there at night. And so my mom would just be quiet. And I remember telling my mom, like, I can't sleep. And so my mom went out and got these animated Book of Mormon cassette tapes, basically, where you could listen to like a radio play of the Book of Mormon. Like I I went to sleep with this book. I I grew up in primary singing Book of Mormon stories. Like Nephi legit was way more my hero than Transformers or G.I. Joe ever was. I I read the Book of Mormon in, in my gray robe in high school, sitting over a heating vent in the middle of the winter. When I went down to Dixie and I was feeling lonely, like I read the Book of Mormon. I I grew up on this. It was saturated me. But I remember being in my mission and I finished reading the Book of Mormon in Portuguese for the first time. I'd read it several times in English by this point, but I finished for the first time in Portuguese. And I knelt down by the, by the side of my hammock where I was studying and I, I said a prayer because um, that's what you do, right? At the end of Book of Mormon and of Moroni 10, you ask God if it's true. And I was like, Heavenly Father, please help me to know that the Book of Mormon is true. And please bless the pineapple I'm about to eat. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. And I put on my flip-flops and I went to go eat some fresh pineapple. And I was like, wait a minute. God didn't answer my prayer. And then I thought for a second, I was like, uh, probably because that was like the worst prayer in the history of prayer. And so this time I went back and I was like, I'm not leaving until I get an answer. I wanted a witness. I wanted God to be like lightning bolt. The Book of Mormon is true. And so I spent some time on my knees and I, I told him all the things I was learning in the Book of Mormon. I told him all the things I was learning on my mission. I was telling him how much I loved it. Um, and, and I got a distinct impression. It just wasn't the one I, I, I was looking for. Yeah, it was kind of surprising to me, but it was very clear at that moment. God, I don't know if it's a, more of a thought, more of a, a words, more of an impression, but it was clear in this. It was distinctive. God said, I'm not giving you a big witness. You already know it's true. And the fact of the matter is, I did. Like, it, it's in me. I believe in Jesus. I believe in this book that witnesses so powerfully of the living son of the living God. The witnesses of his atonement, his grace, his power to transform it in this book are astounding. Like, I believe many of you who have grown up in the church similar to me also have this witness. But sometimes we compare it to somebody who's just gained this witness. And, and for somebody who just gained this witness, it's so distinctive and it's so clear that, that it, we're like, well, it's not so clear for me. But getting a testimony is kind of like getting wet. For those, um, I don't know, who, who just get a testimony and haven't had one of the Book of Mormon, it's like they, they were standing on the edge of a pool and their friend shoved them in and they're like, I'm soaking wet. They go from dry to being wet just like that and it's clear. For the rest of us, it's kind of like 
Um, we're in a, a mister. You know those misters they, they put out in the summertime that they just put that faint mist of, of moisture into the air to keep things cool? You've been under a mister for the past 20, 40, 60 years. Tell me this, who's more wet? Somebody that just got into a pool or somebody who's been under a mister for 40 years? I think you, you know you're both soaking wet. You just got to recognize that recognize. Look back in that story. Ask yourself, what is my witness? What do I love about this book? What have I learned about the living son of the living God, about Jesus Christ? What have I learned about the atonement, grace, power, transformation? Book of Mormon stories, right? What's your witness? Be my 12th man with me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.